0: Asia Tech Podcast, Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello
1: and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. Very excited about this episode to share with you people. There has never been a more important time to study China and its influence in the world. and To help us decode the black box of China, Beijing and its leader Xi Jinping. Kerry Brown, he's the Professor of Chinese Studies and Director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London and formerly First Secretary at the British Embassy in Beijing and author of numerous books on the subject, including, if we have got time, I'll go through them, The World According to Xi, China's World, What Does China Want, CEO China, The Rise of Xi Jinping, Contemporary China, The EU-China Relationship. Kerry, welcome to the
0: show. Thanks very much.
1: It's great to have you here because, as I said to you off air, there's so many questions that I think we have about China now. Because I think in the past, China was interesting. But now, as you said, as you write, there's never been a more important time to study China. So let's start at the top. The World According to Xi is your latest book, which is just out, coming out. For the world. So, wh- what do we need to know? Why did you write this book? What was the story that you were trying to tell, which the world wasn't getting so far?
0: Well, I suppose, you know, when you look at how people are really interested in Donald Trump and look at his tweets, and, you know, mm-hmm. everyone thinks they kind of know something about him. And yet, Xi Jinping is as important, probably more important now. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't say he's a household name. And so I sort of thought, you know, if someone were on a flight from uh, the UK to China, it's got 10 hours a book which is, I mean, it's, I think it's about 35,000 words, so not a long book, just explaining his background mm. and what the sort of central things are, he believes. So that's what it sets out. And mm. at the heart of it is this idea of, you know, making China a great, powerful country and him being the sort of leader at that particular moment, the moment we're seeing now, mm. with all the confidence and all of the kind of, you, you know, sort of the amazing um, ambition that that he has for China and China uh, sort of has for itself. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that
1: we need to understand, which I don't think, if I can speak for Western media, that we, we kind of really understand it well enough. We, we sort of hang on to maybe some old world attitudes about China as well. I mean, it's interesting, Kerry, that you talked about Donald Trump in the beginning in his tweets. We kind of think we know him and we've got an idea of his personality. But with Xi Jinping, he's a bit poker-faced, isn't he? We don't really... I don't know. I mean, I can't really work him out because I don't speak Mandarin, so I don't know what he's saying when he's talking in his voice. But is there a way of describing his personality? Is he sort of very... I mean, it, it, he seems to be quite poker-faced and doesn't give away much. You know him better than anybody else. What would
0: you say? Well, i I mean... <laughs> I have met him once in 2007 when I was uh, a part of a delegation in Shanghai. But, I mean, it was a very, very brief interaction. So I, I can't say, you know, um, the people that know him best are the people that work with him day by day. And um, I am very, 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 very distant from that. What, what I do is, I suppose, explain the world that he comes from a bit, which I do know a little bit about, and the generation he came from that went through the Cultural Revolution, and the sort of experiences that they've had, some of which are quite generic and some of which are particular to him. So yeah. what do we know about him? I mean, we know that he was the son of a kind of, you know, former uh, vice-premier, and so he's part of the elite. We know that from 1966, 67, during the Cultural Revolution, he went down to the countryside. So he had a pretty tough sort of, you know, unrooted uh, childhood. Didn't see his father often for about 19 years while his father was sort of under house arrest. Um, So, you know, he's tough because he went for that experience and then came out of it. Mm. And at the heart of it, I suppose, is, you know, the fact that, He's always been a party member. I mean, since 1973, when he applied to join, I think ten times. And I, I sort of describe him as a born again, you know, communist. He, he's a man of faith. <laughs> mm. um, we don't often think of politicians in that way, but I think the Communist Party of China is a bit like a, it's like a religious organization, you know, about faith and destiny for the country. And Xi Jinping is a true believer, so I think you know, that gives him this sort of ambitiousness. People have met him have commented on, you know, how he is extremely confident. That really marks him out. Um, In terms of, you know, being poker-faced, I suppose he's in a sort of very formal setting. Chinese politics is quite structured. It's like Japanese politics, I suppose. And, you know, the informality you see in America with Trump is is not something I think Chinese would want from their leaders. So you could say that he's poker-faced, but he's quite expressive. His Chinese is quite expressive.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, like you say... I'm not sure the Chinese would want that out of their leaders. I'm not sure the Americans want that out of their leaders as well. So that's another story. There's been a lot of caricatures, hasn't there, of Xi Jinping, everything, or, you know, epithets. He's been the the Chinese godfather. He's been compared, obviously, with the recent news as well to Mao. You know, Asia's strong man, you know. Mm. Or, you know, on the one hand, you know, those sort of extremes, and then you've got comparisons to, like, Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew. So... You know, what what do people, we were obviously searching for some sort of description of him as a person. What do people tend to misunderstand about him? Is there sort of like some media stereotypes about Xi that the West tend to Mm. get wrong?
0: I mean, I think the biggest one is that he's some kind of dictator. I mean, the Communist Party of China now is not like it was during Mao Zedong's time over 50 years ago. I mean, it's a stronger institution and it's got these sort of rules and this culture and this identity which has got very strong as history has gone on. And that's linked to China becoming once more, you know, in modern history, a great powerful country, as mm. I said before. So, you know, Xi Jinping is sort of part of that story. It's not like he's above that story. He makes sense within that story. And I think, you know, he's he's not – the dictator is the party, rather. if I mean, if there's a dictator in China, it's, it's the Communist Party. It's, it's not an individual. Mm. And the party has to survive beyond him. You know, he's serving it. I think almost it sounds sort of um, flippant, but it isn't. Um, Mao Zedong was almost like, you know, the founder of religion, you know, like Jesus Christ. And mm. Xi Jinping is like St. Paul. Okay. <laughs> you know, he's the sort of, right. Let's go with he's this analogy. The sort of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he's, he's the sort of part of the tradition. You can't right, right. really say, okay, he's more powerful than Mao. It's just as senseless as saying that St. Paul was more powerful than Christ. You know, it doesn't mm. make sense. Uh, he's part of that tradition, the Communist Party's tradition in China.
1: Right. So for those that follow China or have seen the news recently, obviously the most important news, and you can explain this better than me, is that now Xi Jinping was given, I guess, lifetime presidency. Was that actually the case? Was that reported correctly? What actually happened? What did it mean?
0: So there's time limits. There were, from 1982, time limits in the state constitution for you know, the presidency uh, of two five-year terms. And so last, you know, kind of in the middle of uh, March at the National People's Congress, these these were lifted. And there's no Mm. time limits now. So this is taken as a big clue that Xi Jinping is likely to want to kind of go into a third term. Um, And, you know, so people would say this is proof that he's a dictator. Mm. I mean, I suppose an alternative explanation is that, you know, the state presidency is not a powerful position. It's it's the head of the party that's powerful. He is concurrently, you know, those two positions. Uh, but you could see a place where he would become president uh, and, you know, the presidency would become more powerful because this is the normalization of you know politics in China in a way that the presidency is usually where the power is anywhere else. And, you know, th- there is a sort of another leader of the party that's possible. Mm. So I, I don't sort of really think it's such an easy thing to interpret. It's a right. sign of intent. But no one seems to be quite clear what that intent is. Right, We
1: won't right. know for four or five years. Yeah, it's sort of an easy, it's an e jerk reaction of Western media as mm. well, isn't it? So, I mean, may, maybe slightly couched in terms of the fear that they have China's ascendancy as well. I, I noticed you, you, when you open the book, you talk, you say that China is now the most powerful country on Earth. So... How do people react when you say that? What sort of reactions do you get? Obviously, you're based in the UK, but you travel a lot to China. Do do these reactions vary? Is there sort of a general reaction?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that China is a very politicized subject and people tend to be for or against. And I, I feel in a sense, my sort of job is to be neither. I mean, it is a fact that China's got enormous ambitions. Its economy is likely to be the biggest in the world in the next decade if not sooner, Mm. militarily, of course, it's, you know, a long way behind the US. But I suppose that's the interesting thing that it's sort of not really wanting to be a competitor there. I mean, it knows that technologically and and in terms of raw power, hard power, that America is going to be a long way ahead, probably, you know, for the next few decades, maybe for good. But in a sense, it's sort of looking at another view of the world, which I think we have to take more seriously now Mm. in that world it's not a sort of, you know, unipolar world. It's not necessarily a bipolar world. It's a world in which, for the first time in modern history, you know, a very different set of values that China has are kind of coming to the fore. And I mean, we have to kind of um, engage with those. If, if we don't particularly like, you know, that, that sort of challenge, mm-hmm. we do have to engage with those ideas because this is, after all, a fifth of humanity. And I think, you know, the one phrase over the last sort of half century that I've really, uh, been struck by was, I think, Richard Nixon in 1968. He wrote this famous article, even before mm. he became president, um, saying, you know, we, we don't, how can you exclude a nation of 800 million, as China was then, from the global community? He said, this is really, you know, senseless. It's very pragmatic, and in mm. a sense, that's what engagement afterwards, uh, you know, kind of why it was um, undertaken. I think it's the same principle today. Mm. Whatever we think, pragmatically, we have to work with a world where a fifth of humanity in China, you know, has a big, big role, and the more constructive that is, the better for the world. So this is the sort of thing that we're all, I think, trying to work out.
1: Right, yeah, very well said. I think that you know the one of the terms used to describe what you're you're, you're talking about, soft power, as well, isn't it? I mean, you know, we talk about Chinese soft power that this. If you look, for example, and maybe we can talk a little bit about this, is about just what China is doing in building out connectivity across the world. I mean, the One Belt, One Road is an example. Um, you know, I, I think outsiders to Asia are pretty much surprised by actually what's going on. And there's that great sort of comparison. isn't? On the one hand, you've got a politician building a wall. And then you've got a politician who's building bridges all over the world. I mean, it's a nice sort of contrast, oh. isn't it? I mean, I know which world I would rather be part of because at the end of the day, you know, humanity needs to sort of connect with each other, right? You know, rather than sort of hide mm. behind a wall. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sort of positive on, I'm, well, I suppose, you know, like yourself, try and be pragmatic about it and take the sort of the emotion out of the, the, the change, if you like. So maybe we could talk a little bit about these projects because that, are you ever surprised? I mean, you, you first came to China in 1991, right? Is that correct? That's right, yeah. Yeah, so That's... you've seen a massive amount of change. Are you still surprised when you go back and see, like, new, new towers being built and bridges and so on? What, what sort of surprised you recently?
0: I mean, so when you – like, I, I mean, I was in China, uh, you know, sort of middle of March – And I went on the high-speed train from Shanghai to Beijing for the first time. I mean, I've used the high-speed train elsewhere in China, but this is, I think, like six-hour journey, which used to take about 12 hours. And I suppose the thing that struck me, you know, on this amazing journey, uh, you go kind of whipping by the Chinese countryside. There's still, you know, a lot of countryside that does look quite undeveloped, even on that journey. Um, Is is that Chinese people? Just look at this sort of, you know, landscape with all these wonderful buildings and mm. high-speed trains everywhere. Something like 20,000 kilometers of high-speed trains now in, in China, which is 20,000 kilometers more than America's got. <laughs> and you think, you know, this is, this is sort of an, a landscape you can think, wow. I mean, it really captures, you know, people's ambitions. And, and I think that, that really strikes me when you go around China, these bold statements of modernity, a, a bit like you get in Tokyo, of course, in other mm. places. Um, and i suppose the thing is that you know the difference within i mean the china that we go around and then maybe america or europe is of course that we in europe and america we're very conscious of our history and we preserve things and the sense is a bit nostalgic and our politics is a bit nostalgic you know it's make america great again looking back to the past and yeah uh, sort of a bit kind of i don't know a bit fearful and thinking the future if only it can be as good as the past that's great and I think for China, you know, the past wasn't an easy one and uh, very, very sort of tragic moments during it. Mm. And it's often, we don't want the past back. Why would you want the past back? You know, that was a really tough past. It's always about, you know, it's not nostalgic. It's forward looking. I think that kind of captures two types of energies that that, that really sort of um, differentiates China. Uh, from you know the West I suppose this sort of forward-looking energy and you see that in the landscape and the way the landscape is often you know completely changed often overnight sometimes that's wonderful and sometimes of course it could be devastating because you get whole cities literally ripped up Mm. and very little preserved so I'm just saying it's completely good but it's certainly highly aspirational
1: yeah it's interesting when you said the the point about high speed trains and you take like the bullet train you have got 20,000 kilometers of track in China and I I saw some McKinsey data as well I think they said that 80 86% of all um all, all the high speed train uh, building any kind of infrastructure build out is happens in China in the last sort of mm-hmm. 5 years so it's all happening there and you know you you wonder that going back to the Xi Jinping, uh, you know, factor is that you to build this to have this kind of vision and you talk about that sort of positivity towards the future and so on, you have to have that kind of long stability. I mean, it's no good having a leader who is going to build a high speed train and he's only in a couple of years and then a the new guy comes in and says, no, we're scrapping that idea. And we're, you know, now we're going to build a hyperloop or something, right? you've got to have that sort of long-term stability. I wonder how much of a factor that is in just sort of China's success in building out this infrastructure, you know, that they know that they can sort of plan 20, 25 years ahead. You know, can we do that in the West? We don't seem to be able to think forward. I mean, take the UK as an example. We yeah. can't even sort out the next six months of what we're going to do with Brexit, right? It just seems like complete contrast of worlds
0: yeah i i mean the chinese have always certainly since the communists came to power in 49 been keen on plans so they've got these five-year programs or plans as they were called from 1953 and um i mean i think there's positives and negatives about that i mean people say china can plan that that's true but obviously there's huge issues in the chinese economy that we shouldn't be complacent about you know big debt levels and a lot of you know unused capacity now now the high-speed train is a wonderful example. There's only two high-speed train links in the whole world that make money. One is um, the Shanghai to Beijing one, and one is um, the Tokyo to Kyoto one, um, mm. which has obviously been going for a long time. And the rest of the world, they're all loss losers. So, so you know, they're, they're all loss makers. So China's obviously, because it's got a, you know, a state-controlled economy largely, not, not really a fully market one, so it can do this. It would be commercially you know, absolutely impossible in um, you know, the rest of the world to really try this. Uh, so what you sort of see is a Chinese model that has invested huge amounts uh, without a real clear idea of where, you know, the kind of returns are eventually going to come. And a state model can do that. Obviously, a more hybrid or a market model, much more difficult, almost impossible. Mm. Um China has learned a lot about how to build high-speed trains. Uh, the technology originally, in fact, came from elsewhere, from Germany. So it's you know interesting that really it was migrating into China and created this you know, huge um, impact. But I think connectivity, as you said earlier, is the thing that the high-speed trains really given. Uh, it's sped up China. It, you know, used to have to really kind of uh, it would be like a, you know a couple of days to get from Beijing to Guangdong down in the south by train and. This has sped things up. It's accelerated Hmm. things. China is a a kind of fast country all the time. I mean, it's built more motorways. And I think someone said that from 2000, something like 2011 to 2014, China used something like more cement in those years or or more concrete than the whole of the rest of the world for the last century. I mean, some ridiculous things. (laughs) And it's some absolutely kind of phenomenal trillions of tons. So, you know, that's a sign of what the, what the state right, can do. Right, Is it efficient? Well, we'll, we'll see.
1: <laughs> right, right. But it needs it needs that sort of planning. You, you can't sort of put that completely out to market forces because that would just be, well, I don't know. I could imagine it, it would yeah. be a disaster, yeah. wouldn't it? You know, when you talk about China now and you talk about some of Xi Jinping's policies, uh, two of the things that come up regularly on Asia Tech Podcasts of interest to our listeners, one is One Belt, One Road, um, you know sometimes people call it the, the 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 new silk road or the maritime silk road or whatever it is um, but that's a sort of a jimping um xi jinping policy really is and the other one being the the connection of the greater bay which is that sort of pearl river delta project those 11 cities coming together do you i mean when you talk about these two people outside of asia can people get their head around just what's going on there?
0: It catches the imagination. I mean, when it used to be called the New Silk Road, as, as you said uh, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, uh, I think people were quite intrigued, you know, these old or rather romantic routes from right, yeah. China into the sort of Middle East and Europe. and Road Initiative is a bit, you know, kind of more abstract. It's about 65 countries now sort of formally involved in it. And there's things like the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, <laughs> you know, and these are all sort of the backbone to it. And projects are starting to happen. I mean, Pakistan has got something like, you know, 40 billion US dollars of uh, aid that's part of this. Um, some countries like India are very, very opposed to it. In Europe, uh, well, I mean, the UK, yeah, engages. We've got now, um, I think it's Douglas Flint, who used to be, I believe, in the uh, HSBC Bank, who is the Belt Road Initiative uh, sort of, you know, kind of ambassador, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, trying to raise awareness of this idea. Um, Really, it's driven at the end of the day by, you know, this idea of engaging with Chinese capital. Uh, The China Development Bank is the one at the heart of it, one of the biggest amounts. There's also a new Silk Road fund. Um, And people, I think, are quite interested in the idea of, you know, having Chinese investment in places like infrastructure. So in the UK, if we talk about a place I'm very familiar with, obviously, um, being based here, is this idea that China could be a partner in building high-speed rail here. Uh, and also you know airports and things like that it hasn't happened yet China has invested in the nuclear plant uh, the Hinkley um, plant in um, the south west of Britain but we don't really have I mean in the UK investment foreign investment only a bit, bit less than two percent is from China so it's still really early days.
1: Mm-hmm. But of that whole initiative though building out like you say, I mean you know building out the lines and uh, it, it, even getting all the way up to Kent, where you are in the u k you know it, it will be at some point, i suppose it will reach there um it will will be connected in some way back to china and then all over all over asia is that going to change is that going to change it you know is that going to be i suppose people talk about geopolitical <coughs> shift don't they is is that going to have a march effect on the world?
0: I mean, Chinese brands and Chinese, uh, you know, kind of capital and uh, Chinese view of the world is becoming a bit more familiar. I mean, Huawei, for instance, telecoms company mm. is active in, you know, over 100 countries. Um, it's not really able to operate in America for political reasons because it's a telecoms company and that's quite sensitive. And uh, where I used to be based in Australia, Huawei is not really able to operate um, on the national broadband, for instance. It's not really trusted So, there's these issues that we see at the moment of China becoming more familiar through these brands. Uh, Alibaba, Mm. uh, you know, is probably the world's biggest online payment service now. Um, You've got Tencent, Taobao, these things are all starting to appear. And then the Chinese state companies like Sinochem and, uh, you know, kind of the petrol companies, uh, energy companies, they're very active in Africa. It's a very global process. but I don't think we really see, you know, the familiarity we have with Korean brands, Japanese brands, American brands, other European brands. Uh, China hasn't quite got there yet. And it's certainly not really associated with uh, easy sort of identity, easy sort of positive identity, like, you know, kind of good technology or all those sorts of things. Maybe that will happen, but it hasn't at the moment. Uh, Xi Jinping wants China to be an innovative country. But to be honest, at the moment, China is not really regarded as an innovative country, partly because uh, its educational system is really still a lot about rote learning, although it's producing a lot of new things and artificial intelligence and STEM, cell, you know, kind of research and things like this. So it's really catching up, but it's still, you know, kind of patchy. Uh, but also, I suppose, because it's a political model, you know, one sort of party state is not regarded as a great encourager of free thinking or only free thinking within very set boundaries. Right. So what we see with China, I suppose, at the end is quite a complicated identity, which is not easy to capture. Mm. And I don't see that, um, you know, being resolved anytime soon.
1: Are they sort of conscious of it internally? Are they, I mean, at the political level, are they sort of conscious of how they're perceived in the world brand wise? Cause I suppose as a brand, they, they have an issue really, don't they? Because I mean, they have the money and the capital to win people's hearts and minds, but, um, you know, they don't have the brand of say the US. You know, it doesn't. You know, US has Hollywood, which is the best sort of marketing department of all, really, isn't it? For the American culture and American way. I mean, how how do the Chinese sort of see themselves now that they're starting to think about themselves in the context of the global, you know, the global stage?
0: I suppose the Chinese, since 1978, in this period we call reform and opening up, and they have sort of internationalized a lot and reached out have put a lot of effort into understanding the outside world, particularly America and Europe and also, you know, partners in the region like Japan, understand their technology and their economic model. And in a way, the world has not really reciprocated. Uh, it's only now starting to really need to learn about China. And so there is a knowledge deficit in the West broadly. And I suppose we're sort of being hit by that now. But it's also a problem for China because it has tried to you know, reach out and increase its soft power, Confucius Institutes and, you know, kind of things like this to teach Chinese culture. Uh, It doesn't really have a Hollywood, but it's starting to sort of use things like Kung Fu and, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of Chinese culture to reach people. The problem is, though, that I think the vast majority of people in, for instance, the UK, Europe, America, um, they don't know a lot about China. And they're having to sort of deal with this partner very quickly that they've never really kind of had to, learn the language of or learn much about the kind of history of. And it's a complicated history. It's a different set of values, as I said, Uh, you you know, kind of very different to a sort of Christian background, a more sort of hybrid, almost sort of, uh, you know, kind of multi-headed cultural and religious background. Um, And that's a lot to take on. So I think this is a period of the great learning. Um, You know, this is a Confucius text, the great learning. Mm. So it's the great learning for the West about this new, you know, emerging power. Uh, but it's, it's going to be a kind of big, big hill, you know, mountain to climb because, uh, we have started very late on this process. So, so part of my function, I suppose, and people like me is just to sort of say to people, look, you know, it's an important, interesting, fascinating culture and it's worth learning about, uh, for its own sake, but also because it's going to be so much a part of the world, Mm -hmm. you know, geopolitically and economically in the future. And we need to kind of be knowledgeable about what it is and, you know, what it thinks about itself, what it thinks about us.
1: Absolutely. The voice of reason. Yeah, we we need more of this, Kerry. This is what we need. We need people to go out there and not sort of, you know, every time we hear the word Asian century, immediately to start throwing up words like protectionism and copycats Mm. like that. We we need to have an honest, open debate about this. And I think Mm. as well, like you mentioned Alibaba. I think we need more people like Jack Ma out there because yes. I, th- I think he does a good yes. job. He, I mean, he's got a—he's an odd-looking guy as well so he's got a memorable face. But you know, he was an—I think he was an English teacher, wasn't he, when he started out? He, he speaks pretty good English. He was at the uh, World Economic Forum recently, wasn't he? Sort of doing his thing there, which mm. is the first time I've really seen—you know—somebody who isn't a politician from China out there, you know not not talking about china but just talking about the world and then then he pops up in california with trump saying that he's gonna you know bring alibaba to america and make a, a million jobs in america i just thought it was funny mm. you know given what trump was going on about right so
0: yeah I, I mean so jack ma Ma Yun is uh i think asia's richest man uh i mean he was a couple of years ago and so Yeah, humble English teacher from Hangzhou, which is a a province in Zhejiang province, just next to Shanghai. So that's actually the province where Xi Jinping was the sort of party, you know, leader from I think 2002 to 2007. So he sort of created this amazing uh, sort of cult of personality, really, Mm. and it's uh, an extraordinary achievement. Um, You know, as you say, there's people like him. There's figures like Yao Ming, the basketball player, who's I think about seven foot ten, and that's the one very. um, sort of good ambassador for China. And there's also, you know, Chinese film stars mm. like Jiang Ziyi. Yi. Um, you know, we're getting to sort of see more of these figures appear. And I think that's obviously, you know, a kind of good thing. Mm. Um, I presume in the future, you know, we'll see see more and more of them. I guess the problem, though, is that um, it's in a different language, you know, from American and, and, and English-speaking world. China, Chinese films, you know, Chinese culture is always going to be diff- more difficult to sort of embrace because just of the linguistic problems and uh you know that's always going to sort of be a bit of an issue that, that you know Chinese film is uh, more difficult to kind of really access and say an American one so China's soft power I think will always have that challenge it'll always be seen to be a bit alien I think you know the attempts to sort of try and communicate more about China's culture while excellent and there's great things to sort of learn from it um are, are sort of you know uh challenging for a public that's probably particularly in you know europe and america uh, looking for familiarity and sometimes it's not easy to really kind of embrace these different very very different sort of cultural and and, and you know kind of uh, uh, sort of values norms that we see in chinese um, mm. films sometimes
1: yeah sure i mean exactly there's work to do isn't there oh, i want to go back mm-hmm. to your point carrie about um the great learning, oh, in the context of what you're talking about with the language as well. And I'll, I'll share this data with you. I don't know if you saw it, um, but the Modern Language Association of America, which publishes data on um, higher education enrollments um, in languages, they published the data for the the most recent data since 2017. So that would have been for the academic 2016 year. They said that in the American higher education, Mandarin enrollments fell by 13 percent and despite a 10-year growth a year-on-year year growth they fell that year 13 percent and there were more american students studying italian than there were chinese what are your thoughts about that
0: yeah so in sydney where i was based uh, until 2015 uh, it was a similar statistic that more people were studying the medieval latin or, or you know ancient <laughs> latin than they were studying mandarin in sydney um, in, Sydney so, places, right? in Sydney, all places, right? Yeah, so, so it sort of really seems preposterous uh, Yes, Chinese is a difficult language, I mean in terms of learning the characters I mean, not not particularly from the grammar uh, but certainly learning all those characters, you need about I think 1,500 to sort of really be able to read a newspaper, so it's a big big amount of memorising mm. um, but it's fun, so I, I think people you know, that do do it find it very rewarding but time consuming so <clears throat> I think this is a sort of big, big challenge. Uh, there's a, um, you know, kind of there's a positive thing, which is that something like 200 million Chinese are learning or have learnt English up to yeah. a sort of, you know, certain standard. Uh, in the UK, you know, amazingly, in 1999 we produced 300 graduates of Chinese from our universities um, in language, and uh, last year or the year before it was about the same number. Hmm. So it's not wow. like people are really kind of pushing. Um, themselves into learning, uh, you know, Chinese. I guess my point would really be, though, that um, China, Chinese studies um, in the UK is regarded as too elitist. And, and you know, I'm sort of trying to kind of, uh, with, with other colleagues, show that, in fact, uh, this idea that China is, you know, a very difficult kind of elite, you know, sort of uh, remote thing to try and do is is just wrong. I mean, you know, if anyone goes to China and sees the environment and the culture there will immediately see that this is very accessible. It's not something intimidating. And, you know, anyone, if they really put their mind to it, can kind of embrace at least some standard of Chinese and some understanding of the country. So, you know, we really want to kind of make that understanding and that knowledge about China part of the mainstream. It, it's, it's you know, it's important to get rid of this idea that China is this sort of exotic kind of oriental, mm. or, you know, kind of mysterious place behind a kind of curtain. Marco Polo world, isn't it? So... Indeed, indeed.
1: Where's where's the sort of the, the lever point here is that, you know, I, I didn't know, I heard you right. You said 300 graduates in Mandarin. Right? Yeah. In, in the UK. Yeah. Right. yeah, in
0: 1999, 300 graduates in Mandarin Chinese. And the same, um perhaps two or three years right, ago. Right. So it hasn't gone up at all.
1: Right. Okay. So, okay. All right. Gotcha. So, uh, I got you. So, I mean, if I was going to university now, maybe I wouldn't take Mandarin as a as a major, but at least it's, you know, I, I would have it as some part of my, my, my studies minor course or something like that. I mean, wow. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's easy to say with my, my experience and having traveled and live in different parts of the world. But you know, if I was 19, 18 years old now, I, th- this would be the first thing I'd be learning. Like the the Chinese are learning English, right? They they know they know the importance. They equate English to some kind of progress, right? They understand if I learn English, I'll get a better job, I'll see more of the world, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems that that is not flipped to the other side. We're not getting it, right? Well, what do we need to do? How do yeah. we how do we change that? Because surely these, you know, now now people say, I mean, the politicians have got it in their mind that we need to teach kids to code. Why are we teaching the Mandarin?
0: Yeah, so I think part of it is to, you know, kind of encourage people to learn a little bit of Mandarin. I mean, a little bit is better than nothing and, and not sort of do what I think we do at the moment, which is say, if you're going to learn it, you've got to go the whole hog and, you know, really commit to getting it to a very high standard. No, you can just sort of learn, you know, practical Chinese or conversational Chinese. And, you know, you don't have to learn the writing particularly. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is really, um, you know, people like the British Council do a really excellent job in China of kind of trying to sort of promote the idea uh, that uh, China is good for people's careers and it helps uh, in companies, in diplomacy, uh, all sorts of areas. Now, having a knowledge about China is a good asset and I think it gets more and more rewards. So there's an incentive. And I suppose the final thing is, um, well, whether we do anything about this or not, I mean, China is coming into our lives. And you know, on the whole, when that happens, then people tend to sort of, you know, just want to become more uh, knowledgeable about a place because it's starting to impact on them. Um, so I think I think that's what's go- what we're going to see happening. The issue really is the the speed at which it's happening. Uh, China's from literally nowhere, um, you know, 40 years ago, suddenly right at the centre of the world economy, and all sorts of areas that never was before. You think about environmental, you know, protection. China's now the world leader in that after America yeah, yeah. sort of basically stepped away. So so we we, d- we have we, we don't really have a choice about this. We either become, uh, you know, knowledgeable quickly or uh, we are going to be at a big disadvantage in dealing with a partner, China, that has really put a lot of effort into understanding, you know, the West. Mm. And I think it's time for a bit of sort of rebalancing and reciprocation for our interests, you know, just yeah. for our interests.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I think the. The, the media doesn't really help, sometimes makes life a bit hard for us when it, it sort of makes that a bit harder for a lot of those young people that I'm talking about, you know, that they don't necessarily portray the right stories or portray yeah. in an objective way, isn't it? I mean, just like you mentioned about the, the environment, we, we always see China as the polluter because, well, for, yeah. for a stage of their history, they were. Um, but I was just looking at the you know, the comparison between Trump and Xi as an example is that, you know, on the one hand, Xi is, Jinping has been instrumental in making China the biggest, I think, in the world, um, manufacturer of, of renewable net energy technologies, not just solar panels, but they have the biggest solar panel farm somewhere in South China. And then on the other side, you've got this politician who, who wants to make coal great again. <laughs> you know, mm. I mean, I mean coal, we're talking about, yes, that sort of that fossil fuel that we don't we dig up out of the ground and you know something from the 19th century really it just seems crazy that comparison isn't it i mean china seems to be really forward thinking in that respect we've got a we don't hear about that do we too much in the west do we
0: yeah i mean xi jinping and his background uh was always in the provinces where he was active before like fujian which is in the south of china uh and then zhejiang as i just said um where he spent five years uh, before coming to Beijing you know he's been a big supporter of environmental um you know kind of protection in an odd way this has been one of the sort of things that he's shown quite a consistent interest in and and you'd say now that China it's implementing uh, its standards much more it used to be that it kind of had these wonderful rules and did nothing about them and now it's got this quite strong ministry of environment in the past it wasn't a ministry it was just a state kind of you know uh a bureau so it was much less powerful but in the sort of national people's congress a couple of weeks ago you know, the ministry of environment was given a lot more powers and so china's really taking this seriously i mean it's taking it seriously because chinese people the great you know emerging middle class want um, good quality air they don't want to sort of live in you know a sort of blighted uh, cities you know smoggy cities but also, I think, because China does know industrialization over the last sort of uh, 40 years in particular, and even before that, has had a big impact on this environment. So it's water, it's, you know, kind of air quality, uh, soil. These are all kind of, you know, serious issues. And China's trying to find the technologies with others to sort of confront that. Uh, it's pretty committed to that. But, I mean, it's still got a long, long way to go. So it's doing a lot, but it's got a big, big journey to go in order to, you know, clean up after this intensive era of industrialization. But, mm. but the commitment is certainly there, absolutely there.
1: When they actually decide they're going to clean something up, they get the job done. Is that a very Chinese thing? It seems to be they have a good history of that, that if we're going to clear up, like Beijing pollution, as an example. It, I'd say that one thing China is very good at doing is, is is when they want to make a change, they actually get ahead and do it. So. Pollution yeah. in Beijing, as an example, I have friends who live there who say even in the last two years, it's quite tangible, the, the improvement in air quality in Beijing when they said, right, we're going to actually change things. They have actually went and did it.
0: Yes, that's, I, I mean, part of it is the state can plan things. And so, you know, they have some control over policy, which probably doesn't exist in, you know, kind of places where the state is less powerful, uh, the centralized state. And, and I think partly it's because there is a sort of real urgency, you know, the government knows that uh, it's really, really got to do with this environmental issue because, you know, Chinese people are sort of suffering because of the air quality issues, the water quality. I mean, you know, they're looking for some kind of sustainable model. Um, The water quality issue is a particularly interesting one because you see places like Beijing, you know, the capital, Mm. they're just not, um, you know, they're not places that have a lot of uh, rainfall. And yet there's something like 15 million, 20 million people living there. So it's really sort of a question of whether Beijing is a sustainable city in the long term. And I suppose the other thing is, you know, soil quality. Uh, It's really, really a huge problem in China, you know, cleaning the soil because of the contamination over the last um, 40 years, and it's expensive. Cleaning soil is super, super expensive at the moment. The technology, as I say, is not there, Uh, but this is where China probably can be an innovator. You know, it's trying to create new technologies that can address this. And it says, for instance, you know, the United Kingdom in the 50s had terrible smogs, and then it managed to implement policies and find technologies that dealt with that. So it's certainly looking for these things. And as you say, its ability to plan sometimes gives it a lot of advantages, uh, even in a big, big issue like this.
1: Yeah, I mean, just in rounding up, there's a couple of things I want to ask you, Kerry. One is about the uh, advice for people who want to learn more about China, because I think, you know, those that get it, get it at this stage. They, they don't need to be sold to. They, they want mm. the information. They're out there sort of searching for it. So we'll come to those in a minute. But before that, one thing I'll... I'll Out of curiosity, I saw the Liverpool-Shanghai partnership. Mm. What was that all about? That just seems to be a a strange match of cities, right?
0: I mean, Uh, how how did that happen? So their, you know, kind of connection really is because Liverpool had the oldest uh, Chinatown in Europe because of the ports. Ah, I see. Uh, And so they were twinned because of that connection. It is a mismatch, mismatch. Is as much as Shanghai is like about 24 million people and, uh, you know, Liverpool is half a million. Uh, but their kind of historic links are genuine. And so, I mean, I had a happy time, you know, advising that project for four years up to 2010. Mm. And that, I mean, the link is still a kind of very lively one. It's really a cultural link. There's some investment. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people to people links. But it's great, you know, that a city in the UK has got this story that it likes to tell about China and, you know, the fact that it's football is popular in China, that the Beatles are popular in China, that, you know, kind of Liver Liverpoolians, they often feel like, you know, the three graces on the front of um right. you know, are like the Bund. But of course, you know, the Bund was developed uh, earlier. So it's, it's, it's a valid, you know, relationship right. and a, and a kind of very lively one. That's fascinating. I just wondered how that came about
1: because, you know, it's not, not an obvious connection, but like you no, said, there is some history there, but, you know, you, you certainly wouldn't it's all pair them together size-wise. Size nah. <laughs> no. All right, so that, that's that out of the way. So, I mean, let's talk about, I mean, the, we have listeners and certainly a lot of listeners outside of Asia who want to get into Asia, and they could be, for example, undergraduates, recent graduates, people sort of starting out on their career trajectory, and you know how do you you know where do you start i mean how do you maybe you didn't study mandarin uh, what do you do is it it's just a case of get your back back and go i mean where mm. do you go where do where do you t- show up you know would you go to beijing would you go to shenzhen where do you start i mean if you were advising somebody who was just sort of starting out very keen on china what what are the sort of the first sort of steps they could take to get prepared Apart from well, buying I mean, first, your
0: book, of course. Sorry, go on. Uh, of course, yes. Number one, buy my book. <laughs> yeah. um, buy my books. Uh, I mean, I think the first thing is, you know, to have they not done so, you know, just come to China and, you know, get some living experience, you know, as a sort of uh, kind of just just to see China as the reality. I mean, nothing can replace that. So, you know, that's the first thing. And uh, Shanghai, Xi'an, Beijing, these are the sort of three centers, one for history, Xi'an, one for It's great commercialism, Shanghai and drama and, you know, Beijing, the capital, which still has a lot of history. So that's the first thing. The second thing is learn a bit of Chinese. You know, it's not, um, as I say, just get rid of this idea that it's uh, difficult and impossible uh, to any level. I mean, even, you know, a couple of hours a week uh, can give you a lot. It's very rewarding. I mean, to learn Chinese is is really, really rewarding. It's fun and um, it just sort of gives you a different way to view the world. And I suppose for me, when I was sort of starting out, so I didn't do Chinese at university. I did English literature, completely, you know, kind of different sort of background. And I went to China first when I was about um, 24, and then I lived there uh, for a couple of years, from 20, uh, you know, six to 28. I suppose the thing that most inspired me when I was learning Chinese was uh, a, an Australian guy called Andrew Beale, actually, who's still a very good friend. I was living in Melbourne, you know, and, and he was a Chinese teacher. I mean, it's very sort of. Uh, you know, kind of local Australian guy, but he had learnt Chinese to a very good level, you no know, fluent in it. And I kind of thought, wow, you know, that's a sort of inspiration. This, this guy, you know, no background before he kind of started studying Chinese. And then, you know, he mastered it. And I thought, well, there's a sort of, you know, he, he was a great mentor to me. So I suppose you sort of look at people who've done it and you think, well, look, I mean, they, they kind of managed to do it, so why can't I? And to whatever level people do do it, I mean, it's always rewarding. So it was a happy day when I you know, started learning Chinese and you know, 30 years later, almost, I have to say, it's given me almost like a second life, you know, I mean, a way of looking at the world and a way of enjoying the world. I always go there and sort of learn so much and always sort of feel the amazing sort of energy. And, you know, it's just to me a great sort of joy that, that I've had this sort of privilege. So, uh, I'm very zealous about it, as you can hear, and I'll just tell anyone, you know if you want to really, really sort of energize your life and see a different way to view the world, just get on a plane and go to China. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's the best advice ever. And are Chinese people surprised when you open your mouth and Mandarin quite fluent Mandarin comes out?
0: I guess so. Yes. I mean, it's they're always very polite, even right. like I said my Chinese teacher, you know, you know, kind of college when I was doing this one, one year sort of like diploma in Chinese, he'd always make this joke about carry your Chinese is really fluent. It's a pity no one can understand you. So (laughs) I I speak it, you know, as I suppose, with a sort of foreign accent, but on the whole, uh, it gives you a great sort of reward when people know you can speak to them, then they, uh, you know, can create that link uh, anywhere, (laughs) as in anywhere. you know, local language skills are really, really um, hugely important.
1: Yeah. I mean, your advice earlier about, you know, learning, mandarin chinese is and not having to go all the way is quite important isn't it because even if you can speak a few words it demonstrates to the other person that you've made an effort you know if you can speak a few words and when you turn up in china is that that's going to help a lot i mean if you can't speak anything it's going to be quite hard but you know if you can just say some basics i think that that goes a long way doesn't it because that communicates that you care yeah
0: it does and i think you know chinese obviously extremely proud of their culture and their history as, as you know japanese or other you know kind of nations are and i think it's respectful if you go there even if you only say a few words it shows you know you've at least sort of made that effort when i first went to you know, work as a diplomat in china in the early 2000s there was a businessman who'd been there for 14 years and he couldn't say a word of chinese yeah. and i just sort of thought that sort that of happens, showed an attitude really yeah well, it's, it's a sort of a very deliberate attitude, and I, yeah. I feel like people, on the whole, in China now would, would kind of look down on that. They yeah. respect someone who, even if they can make a complete hash of it, at least made an attempt. I right, think that's, right, um, right. And know, what a waste important. as well!
1: What a waste of an opportunity, really. You know. For mm. that.
0: Yeah, I yeah.
1: mean, I, I guess one thing listeners may be worried about is that they, they, I suppose they see, like you say, this exoticism, these exotic cultures. And they think, oh, I'd have I go there, and I use my chopsticks wrong. They're all going to laugh at me, or you know if you're looking at the the east from a young age maybe you watch shogun and the japanese movies and think oh i don't bow properly they're gonna cut my head off right so think <laughs> people have that sort of fear like that over respect for a culture as well they do, do, do yeah how, how do you advise people because that can put people off from going because they don't want to look stupid right
0: i i think you know you're given a lot of allowance as, as a non-chinese you know as you are anywhere for sort of not knowing the full rules and on the whole basic laws of courtesy and politeness and respect the same anywhere. I mean, if you want to, you know, just be um, uh, kind of courteous and polite, uh, Yeah, I mean, you might not get everything right, but on the whole, I don't think anyone's going to get particularly offended. Uh, like anywhere, if you're going to be extremely sort of demanding about your sort of expectations being met and everything needing to be the same way as it is back home, you're going to have a tough time, you know, you're not going to have a pleasurable experience. But I think, the vast majority of people that go to China, I think they really enjoy it. They find it interesting and fascinating. And the formality is sort of just a very minor thing that pretty soon disappears. So... I would not be intimidated by that. It's it's an amazingly stimulating place to travel around and, you know, very rewarding, as I say eventually, very rewarding, um, you know, in terms of its difference and its the, the kind of diversity that it offers.
1: Mm, without a doubt. Listen to the professor, just get on the plane and go. <laughs> when are you getting on the plane and going next to China? What's your, you know, your future uh, look so like?
0: I've just got back from Beijing and Shanghai uh, and I'll probably be going... Uh, in June again, and then probably in September. So uh, we'll where try and go every three months. you spend most of your time in Beijing or Shanghai? Well, so Shanghai and Beijing, and, uh, you know, usually try and go to, uh, like last year I went to Chengdu, and then uh, Xi'an, so the great city mm. where the terracotta warriors are in the middle, and uh, Hangzhou where Alibaba actually is just near Shanghai. Um, so every time is sort of different. Of course, there's places which are, um part of china in a sort of different way like hong kong uh, that's always an interesting place to go and it's much more in, in a sense sort of you know kind of it, it has a different feel about it because it was obviously uh under british rule until 1997. um so you can kind of even if you're in you know europe you can go to china towns and get a flavor what china's like and you know there's great china towns in san francisco the one in uh, sydney uh, the excellent one in uh, you know Melbourne and then the one in London, there's Chinatowns almost everywhere now, you can start to enter the culture that way. So it's not just a case of getting on a plane, you can just get on a train and go to part go. of China near you. <laughs> no excuses. There you go. <laughs>
1: Really enjoyed your time with us today, Kerry. Really, uh, you know, informative and educational. Thank, Thank you, you so much for sharing your your writings and your work and also your thoughts on China and help us sort of unpack and decode that black box. And yeah. I think, you know, the world needs more work of people like you because, as you said, like we're slowly waking up to reality that China is a much more important factor in our lives. And I think those that get it will look around and say, like, how do I better understand it? Like you said, it could even just mean getting to the local Chinatown and sampling or getting on the plane, reading your book. There's many ways that you can learn about this. And like you said, be prepared. You know, the great learning starting, it starts right here, right now. So Kerry, before you go, before I let you go, you have to share a link where people can find out more about you and your work.
0: Well, uh, so I have a website, um, which is Kerry. And then hyphen brown dot uh, co dot uk, uh, and then obviously on the King's College website, the Lao China Institute has uh, a, a place there. So in those two places, uh, you can see the things that I write and do. Uh, and then on my Twitter, it's B China, B K E, double R Y China is in the country altogether. So B Carry China, and that's the same for my Chinese WeChat too. So uh, you can find me there.
1: Fantastic. Kerry Brown, everybody, Professor of Chinese Studies, at Director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London, also author of The World According to Xi, amongst many other titles on China. Just go to, well, just go to Amazon and search for Kerry Brown and... Kerry Brown-China and you'll find all his works there. Go and grab yourself a copy of that book if you really want to get up to date. The Great Learning Starts Now and get yourself a copy of that book because that's probably the best way to get started and understand it in an objective fashion. Kerry, thanks so much for joining us on the show today.
0: Thank you very much. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.